Welcome to another episode of the Get More Students podcast. I'm your co-host, Herbert Gozer, founder of Learn Media, and I am joined by my co-host, Corinne Algie. Uh, Hi, everyone. Corinne Algie International Education Marketing. <laughs> and yes, today, uh, Corinne, we have a very exciting topic, uh, especially do. for those in the language uh, education space, uh, specifically language leaders who are trying to navigate this very complex and ever-changing world of technology and how to implement and use it in the language business. We have a, an esteemed panel today of edtech entrepreneurs and really people in the know. And we're going to discuss the new book, Langtech, which is specifically for language leaders, product owners, and entrepreneurs that discusses really these, these key points to making those decisions. So let me introduce you to our panel. We have Alex Asher, most of you would uh, know him. Alex is the CEO of LearnCube and the co-author of the Langtech book. We have Brian Kant, co-founder of Ebu uh, Education and also the co-author of the Langtech book. Uh, <laughs> Rob Sabo, VP of Learning Sciences at LearnShip and Miriam Pleininger, who is ex-Babel EdTech consultant. So lots of EdTech specialists in the house today. Welcome, everyone. Let's get straight into it. My first question for Alex and Brian, you guys wrote the Langtech book. I know that both of you are heavily involved in online language education technology. Tell me, how did you come up with the idea for it? The big thing for us was we felt that there was a real gap in in just the, the the market i mean we call it a market but when we th there still is a gap right brian like no one has actually created a way of talking about our space which is language technology instruction in particular like looking at online technology and we just felt initially just out of interest and out of curiosity could we make sense of the space we kind of call home professionally and from there the conversation started happening we, we started interviewing leaders, including, and, and I think this is where I'd like to just quickly point out two of the people in this in this room here. Rob, actually, I think you're one of the first people that I spoke to about this idea I had about the, this book that I was going to create with Brian. And, you know, it was nice to hear that you thought, hey, it's not a, it's not a, a, a foolish errand, go for it. And then you helped us a lot as well. You even reviewed the book. And I'd also like a real special shout out as well to, to Miriam, who uh, as well, not only literally, I think we were like, oh, you just give us a little bit of feedback. And Miriam, you kind of went through the entire book and gave us all these wonderful insights. And I know that Brian and I are so thankful for that. So I think I, think I said this a is a topic that I can't touch lightly. So if you let me in, <laughs> you let me do the full thing. That was exactly right. Um, Brian, is there anything else about why we, why, why you thought it made sense then and it makes sense now. No, I felt that like your description is quite accurate. And also perhaps the fact that there wasn't, we've been working in the language instruction or the language learning ecosystem for so long. And there wasn't really, for Lantech, for language learning technology, there wasn't really an overview or a systematized overview of the knowledge. It was all more or less like a little bit scattered. So we wanted to contribute also to the Langtech ecosystem by creating this sized overview of the companies, the people, and also provide a theoretical framework for the ecosystem, which was also very relevant for us. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Now, Brian, you just sort of touched on it. I was lucky enough to get an advanced peek at the book before it, mm-hmm. before it came out. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. But one of the things that really stood out for me was the framework that you just mentioned. So mm-hmm. for the people who are out there who haven't had the chance to look at the book <laughs> yet, can you tell us what is the PPPS framework? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Alex, would you like to uh, get started I think- or should I jump in? I would like you to start. I mean, I think this was very much, we, we created and we sort of come from different backgrounds as well. I think it's worth mentioning that Brian is you know, ex-Harvard and and really has led pedagogy at his online language school as well. So I think, Brian, if you want to talk about, yeah, <laughs> the the origin, particularly on the learning effectiveness, because in the end, we sort of came from different different views, me more on the, the business viability side for Langtech products and services and, and you more so on getting the learning right. Definitely. Yes. Well, the PPPS framework is which we touch on on the second half of the book. So basically the first half of the book is uh, this overview we were just talking about, about what is Langtech, what are the different categories of Langtech products, who are the people who are the most relevant in Langtech nowadays. Uh, And then the second half of the book is this framework. And the framework is basically a tool for product development in language learning, in online language learning. And we were trying to create a practical tool that product managers or founders or educators who are starting their own school or developing their own Langtech product could use by, I mean, at the moment of developing a product and to basically overcome two problems. One of them is founder bias. And the other one is this uh, tension that usually exists between uh, learning and business teams when you're developing a Langtech product. Um, the first one, and I'll try to be, because we have a whole chapter on it, so I'll try to be like very, explain it very, very briefly. But founder bias is, it's very common. We notice that it's very common in this space that founders or product, product managers, they tend to think, okay, this worked for me, so it should work for everyone, right? So that's confirmation bias. And in learning, that is just not possible and it won't ever be because everyone has a different way of learning. So that is something that can very easily kill your product. And then the second thing, this tension between education and business teams is, well, everyone who's worked on large Langtech company probably knows that there's always this push for, which is natural, of course, for learning people or people who have an education background to want to create a product that is optimized for learning effectiveness. And uh, business people want to create a product that is optimized for uh, commercial or business viability. So these are precisely the two elements uh, of the framework. And we, we, we're, we're going to talk more about that now. But we basically want the framework to be this tool that will, will help product developers overcome these two issues and basically try to find a balance between both sides, business and learning. I don't know, Alex, if you want to add something else, or otherwise I can just jump to the first part, which is learning effectiveness. I think you really introduced that well. I think mm-hmm. what I would say is initially we kind of, as Brian said, we sort of, it was about understanding. And so we kind of went into the overview of the ecosystem. Then we looked at the technologies. And because we had all of these interviews, as I mentioned with Miriam and, and Rob included, the framework sort of came out of those conversations. And we felt like this is this is our contribution in a way that, uh, people can use it as a tool. Maybe also just very briefly, if, if Rob and Miriam, have you felt that same sort of tension in either of those areas or did that kind of make sense to you? 
I, I certainly have, and I think Miriam feels it with similar uh, energy and passion. Yeah, because th these things are daily experiences, right? When you work in the field, so these tensions are just everywhere. But Miriam, maybe if you want to, yeah, rest, yeah, agreed. And I think we'll talk maybe later a bit about the the self study, the machine powered instruction, and the life classes and challenges yeah. that come from there. I think we'll have some good examples there, Rob, about these uh, tensions and trade offs that we we do on a daily basis, basically. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you know, there's sort of uh, front foot strategy, and then there's reactive tactics, and organizations find themselves between the two. And one, one thing I would say that the framework is very good at is uh, zeroing in on where you want to be, you know, yeah. like how big you actually want to be. You know? At what scale is profit optimized, you know, qualitatively, what do we want to offer, and what are the trade-offs? And it, it's quite good to bring in the people setting the strategy to, to the qualitative level of how the product works because you can break things uh, if you push too hard too fast and you don't fully understand the minutiae of how this thing operates mm. it's very very dangerous so yeah i think that there's a lot we can address but uh, I, I suppose we'll get there through the structure of the webinar. yeah well why don't we get, get into it and, and maybe discuss more about how we can actually apply this framework into some some real world examples. Maybe Alex, could you start maybe with an example of an online language school? Sure. So one of the four kind of parts of the, the framework that we looked at was making it effective, which is particularly on, on Brian's side is very strong on making it personal and practical. And I think, again, as you say, like an example, we can kind of explain how we apply it and we felt that that would be a more interesting discussion and the book you can kind of build out all of the the ideas behind it and then on my side i'm going to be talking more on the commercial viability and particularly the profitability and scalability was actually a, a really key feature for us so those are the that's i think the the kind of nutshell and we could use an example and then go through each of the components if that makes sense. Uh, Brian, when we were discussing, we thought that a, a good example might just be starting off with, we'll call it almost a, a generic online language school at this point. And that online language school might be doing, yeah, they're, they're doing live classes, which is the technology, the scalable aspect of, of their business. But, you know, we can kind of think, I think all of us can have an idea of what that looks like and the challenges that they, they, they face. And maybe we could go through the framework and, sh and show how we think about applying it. Does that make sense to you as well, Brian? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, sure. So let's start off with what would be the, the challenges initially on the personal side in terms of the first one is understanding the, is it effective? How would you think, what would be the normal things that people kind of m maybe misinterpret about being personal? And why is personal so important to making learning effective? Right. So basically, when we talk about learning effectiveness in LangTech in particular, or in, on, in language learning, in, <laughs> but not, not in learning in general, but we define, as we can see here, we define learning effectiveness as personal and practical. So, or we could say actually that learning effectiveness is achieved when the student is able to become an independent user of the language. That means that they are able to use the language and mediate it outside an instructional environment. 
And the way that this is achieved according to us and the framework is by making learning personal and practical. Now, personal in this case, the work and definition that we're using is when the learning experience is a product of input or unique choices, which is different from personalized, which is not bad, it's good, but it's in, in a personalized learning experience, um, regardless of how many choices the user has and how uh, customized those choices are, uh, the choices are still created externally. So the learner has no agency in uh, determining what and how will be learned. Um, so uh, now touching on the example that we, on the case that we uh, are, are touching on now, which is the online language school, I would, I, I mean, I would say, of course, that for online language schools, uh, especially for those schools that do private classes, this is the easiest aspect to cover. Of course, it's, it doesn't, it won't happen automatically, like it will depend on what methodology, what curriculum you're using, but it is easiest to optimize your product for personal learning when you have a language school, like with a live teacher. So yes, I don't want to extend myself. Like I, I could talk a lot more, but like, I think that let's, let's just one, see what others one think. Of thing, one of the <laughs> yeah. challenges though, right, is where you can, depending on how the school operates, Mm -hmm. This could be something you could really improve. Like if you have no idea of what if you know which of your teachers are applying things, or if you're using a, a purely standardized curriculum and you're expecting everybody to follow the script, mm -hmm. even though it might be one-on-one -on -one tutoring, you could actually have not necessarily a particularly personal, as we describe it, learning experience. Definitely. Let's let we don't have to mix curriculum with class materials. It's not the same. So curriculum generally entails other things. It it, it I mean the working definition that I like to use is that curriculum is composed of class materials, methodology, assessment, and goals. So class materials are just one aspect. So as you just said, Alex, if if you have class materials, no matter how good they are, if they are if they are used in a standardized manner, then you can still have an online language school that is not personal and it's providing a standardized experience. So yeah, it's it's all about the methodology and how your teachers are trained. Definitely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that sort of jumps also in, in a similar way, you can imagine without having the right methodology or understanding, you could also possibly get into a bit of, again, you could find yourself not hitting the motivational kind of points that you want with your language school. And so the second part of our framework is about making it practical. And again, this is an area that you understand really well, Brian, and, and you've had to apply to your own language school. Mm -hmm. How do you kind of view practicality in this real world relevance and transferability? How does this fit together? Right. Well, as you just said, in short, practical in language learning means that the knowledge uh, that is acquired in the instructional environment is transferable to the real world, to a non-instructional environment. So yes, uh, again, that is something that the deeply depends on the curriculum. So it's not uh, it's not just about like whether it's an online language school or if it's an app, which we're going to see later. I mean, this is more about curriculum development. So it's extremely important for your product to be optimized for that transferability for this the user to be or the learner to be able to become a user of the language and transfer what is learned in the classroom outside of class. So one of the 
ways a school could do this would be to use a competency-based education curriculum, for example, because competency-based uh, education focuses specifically on mastery of skills. We could do a whole webinar only on competency-based education, so I'm just trying to explain it like very, very quickly. But that, that focus on mastery rather than focus on time spent on a specific topic is what will make your content real world relevant and easily transferable to the non-instructional environment. Yeah, I, I also kind of took away from you, Brian, is this concept that we can, you know, you can have these great personal tutoring sessions and maybe we have really good conversations. Mm -hmm. But actually, I've got, I'm not kind of transferring that to maybe the place I need to, which might be in a work environment, like maybe the, the, maybe there's no kind of, it's very lays fair and, and you kind of end up having lots of practice, but no, no learning as such. Or you could be in a situation where you're, everything's a great game and isn't everyone having fun, but that doesn't go to actually having a conversation with another human. Uh, which for most people is what people are, are trying to get. So I definitely learned a lot in this particular section from you. And, and one thing that the personal and practical also really align with is around motivation. In fact, out of our discussions with leaders, motivation was the number one thing that technology was kind of not very good at because motivation, particularly when it comes to language learning, is I've got some great quotes from some of the leaders in the book, but this idea that First of all, language learning is a really long experience, possibly a lifelong skill. And you have varying starts of motivation. Sometimes you're really motivated and therefore you might do, you know, really commit to things. And that's when you might be doing the live lessons. And then you go through troughs of kind of despair and you're kind of carrying on with an app, but nothing is kind of sticking. And I really want to kind of highlight with the personal and practical aspect, I think this is where understanding motivation is it really kind of taps into into both of these these particular areas it's by deliberation so that's probably as far as i would go for now on this example i think there's a lot more we could go with and in the book we kind of delve into a lot of applications we actually go through some examples and sort of show which areas you could you could highlight and and maybe some of those areas will ring true for a lot of uh, language school owners i'm going to jump into this next section here which is on making something commercially viable. And there were kind of two areas here, the profitable aspect. I'm not going to spend much time on that. I think it's fairly self-evident. However, it's remarkable, particularly since a lot of, and, and it's a great thing, by the way, when, when you have edupreneurs, teachers that become entrepreneurs, they may not come from a background of understanding, hey, in the end, this still needs to be a profitable business in order for it to either attract funds if it needs to, or to even just stay in business and maybe, in this case, it's an online language school, in order for it to pay its teachers on time and to pay its owner on time and for everybody to have a great result. So profitability is, is really important. And in this particular example on the online language school, this is where, again, we can get in some hot water. If you're offering an online language school that is focused on price, it's very hard because you keep on reducing your prices, your margins get squeezed. There's nothing left over to invest in your teachers. Your teachers leave because they aren't getting that well paid and there's nothing else beyond the pay to keep them. And so they find other work. You end up spending all your time recruiting. And I think that's kind of the other thing in the book that we really talk about is when you're starting a venture, often you have a lack of understanding of all the hidden costs that go into 
in this case, running an online language school, it's not just my teacher rate, you know, not, not just my price minus my teacher rate. And therefore that's my profit. It's like, how am I, how much time and who am I needing to be able to recruit these teachers? What am I going to do about professional development? That kind of hits again, how that kind of tension sometimes between profitability and making something more personal and practical can start feeling some tension because uh, a business owner might be like, yeah, but if I'm, if I'm not making this, you know, if I have to hire this person, my profit's lower and I, I can't continue or, or they might have differing ideas on that. But without the investment in teachers in this case, there's churn anyway, and there's a whole bunch of other kind of costs, therefore, that kind of come out of recruiting much more often than you need to. A, a lack of kind of continuity. Students really build attachment with, with teachers, we've found. So when you have rotating teachers all the time, you kind of really remove a lot of the motivation behind students. So it's just a whole bunch that you can unpack with that profitability piece. And the scalability piece is very important because when we're talking about LangTech, we also as part of the definition, it's all about at scale as well. That's kind of what technology is trying to drive uh, a larger impact. And for that larger impact, that's why we often use technology. And sometimes that might be systemizing things. We've seen great examples in the online tutoring spaces with very large companies, including you know, companies from Lingoda or even GoStudent in the tutoring space, VIP Kit and all of the, the, the Chinese unicorns that were in this space before Lots of great examples of highly scalable human-powered instruction businesses. But again, getting that right is, is a big, is a bit of an, an art form and, and a science as well. So that's, I think, a, a good place to start in terms of Brian and I hopefully explaining where the PPPS comes from and how it can be applied. But I'd love to maybe pass over to our, our special guest here, Miriam, and, and maybe particularly Rob, since you do so much in the human-powered instruction with LearnShip, you'd have some ideas on this tension and how we can think about these trade-offs and opportunities. Yeah, thanks, Alex. You know, and what was going through my mind when we were talking about the personal is that in, in business-to-business training, there's a third stakeholder, which wasn't discussed there, which is the uh, program manager or the buyer, which is typically the representative of learning and development. And in large corporations, a lot of what LearnShip does is with very big multinationals, they will have fairly sophisticated L&D strategies and you're coming in and you'll be expected to kind of harmonize with that. So you'll spend quite a lot of time with the program manager trying to understand where people are, trying to understand where they're supposed to be going and where the gap is. And then the curriculum is that is what is to be learned, right? Is reverse engineered from, from that gap. And there it gets quite interesting because at, in large cohorts, there will be many interests if you ask each individual learner. But the organization, for example, needs people to improve their participation in meetings, to write shorter, more concise emails, you know, typically to speak up when they disagree if they're from certain cultures where that's not normal. And it's not the same necessarily as the learner preferences. Whereas if you're selling B2C, learner preference almost everything because you want them coming back, paying for the subscription, enjoying the experience and so on. So in B2B, I think, the, the personal is not always the North Star, to be honest. And so it really depends, I think, yeah, who your clients are and, and your business model. Rob, I thought that was fantastic. I, Brian, my inkling with this is couldn't you apply the PPPS, but you just also could almost have a, a part of that that's focused on, let's say, the, the corporate customer. And in your case, Rob, mm. I would be almost like it's personal to that buyer. and it's And the real world relevance is like, 
the transferability to that corporate buyer, that HR manager. So I, I don't know if that's, again, I'm just thinking on the spot there, but I, I feel like there's some useful uh, framework there. I'm not too sure. What do you think, Brian? Oh, yeah, I was thinking exactly the same thing. So I, I, the way I see that is, I see it as a variable within the personal and practical equation. I would include not just the learner, the learner's individual goals, but also the company's goals. And like Alex mentioned, in the practical aspect, definitely the transferability would be measured in using the language for all those competencies or in all those situations and contexts which you just mentioned, which the company wants uh, the learner to use them in. Yeah. And then even on the, the profitable and scalable aspects, of course, there's a lot you can kind of think about, about the profitability side, but certainly on the scalability, your systems working with the bigger the customer, the more scalable and resilient those systems are going to be. And therefore, you're going to have some interesting tensions between, again, the learning effectiveness and the, the viability side as you need to streamline things that sometimes means more standardization. And that can kind of eke at the, the personal motivation aspects. So I, I think you could have a, quite a lot of interesting conversations just around that particular topic. Should we maybe talk about language apps? Okay. I mean, we all know the, you know, the, the big the, players, the market leaders, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> probably mentioned them by name, to be honest with you. And, and I believe um, Miriam, you have some great insight into this and used to um, be a consultant for Babel. Is that correct? More than a consultant. Um, currently I'm working as a consultant, um, but I worked at Babel for more than 12 years and helped oh. build the company and the app was uh, responsible for the pedagogy and content and learning experience design at Babel. Um, so what are, what are challenges and opportunities that we can uncover with the framework? I think we talked a little at the start already about this tension, these trade-offs. And I think a trade-off that we talked about in, in maybe more than the first interview, Alex, for the book was that people responsible for the educational value at a language learning app maybe that also spends into human-powered instruction, they will want to be the product to be effective all the way through, mm -hmm. right? While from a business perspective, it makes so much sense to focus on the period in the customer journey until the sale, because there will be some connection between long-term retention and revenue, but it's a lot weaker, at least in the first few years of a company, than the connection between the first-time revenue at the same time, from a, from a habit building perspective, it also makes sense to um, put a lot of people power into the first few sessions, because if you can, people can engage people early, there will for sure be an effect for many people to um, stay um, engaged for a longer time, which also influences the, the learning effectiveness in the end. But the product is so much bigger than the first two or three sessions, and that bugs people who come from a pedagogy perspective. So there is a lot of tension uh, between um, optimizing for profitable in the first few, in the start part of the, in the funnel, start part of the funnel into the product and the tail end of the product. And Rob kind of nodded. So I think this is something that product leaders need to battle from a strategy perspective. But, and I think the PPPS framework can make this uh, tension quite, quite visible. I would love yeah, to... I mean, that's... Sorry. It, it, it seems, Miriam, that it's kind of how much of your business is renewal business 
Mm. And, and how much is, you know, one sales cycle? So just, Yes, and so yeah. I've seen that the renewal business is just um, a lot harder to grasp than the first time sale business. Mm. And it's it's just a lot easier to, fee- to see effects on, on revenue if you optimize for, for the sale and for maybe for effectiveness in the first two sessions, because you might be able to leverage word of mouth than for the long term. But of course, there are effects on long-term retention. So from a revenue perspective, it does make sense to invest. The question is how much. From a pedagogy perspective, of course, you want to guide people all the way through until they have reached their target, if they have a target, or until they are basically done with the product and are onto something else because <laughs> they've just laddered up. So what, what, what do you think from a, from a, from a human powered instruction perspective, do you see a similar tension to keep I, pe- between keep, I, keep, keeping people engaged and optimizing the product all the way through as uh, with a self-study app? Yes. But I mean, the bulk of our work, bulk of our business is renewal business actually. Mm. So it's, it's, different. Uh, it's, 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 yeah. But I would say that, you know, when we, we acquired Global English, which used to belong to Pearson, mm-hmm. when we acquired the self-paced and blended part of what we do at LearnShip, mm-hmm. they instituted a role which was called the learning specialist. And mm-hmm. that's like somebody who reaches out to the learner and contacts them, guides them through the, the platform. Oh, we haven't seen you recently, you know, and so on, which is a little bit like an app sending a push notification, we miss you and so on. And so I, I think that there is that interest because... We have sort of quarterly, half-year business reviews. And at that point, you do a kind of ROI assessment, you know? So training costs so much money. These cohorts have moved from here to here. Drop-off rate is this, engagement. And so I think it's in our interest to make sure people move all the way through. Because then you can show, look, what, what you're doing with us fits your overarching strategy. And so you should work with us in all the different geographies and bring in all the other business units. I was also, one of the things that I found quite obvious when I was talking with a variety of different uh, language leaders was, you know, that tension can be very, very apparent or or only a little bit, but it's very interesting in that I also, product and business is often much close, more closely related than product and say pedagogy. (laughs) So product is actually more on the business front because often they'll have certain targets like getting students in getting them to come back to their first session. Those are all actually in a way much more like business size of things rather than say- yeah, Alex, it's true, but yeah. it's also a major source of danger. Yeah? Because if you're making product calls purely on business drivers, you run the risk of sort of spreadsheet style management where you qualitatively do not understand the widgets that you're moving around. And that is a bad road to take. Uh, so it, it's true what you say, but I, I would have always been, you know, I don't know, I would always argue uh, that you need pedagogy in the room all the time at the highest possible level. And the moment you stop doing that is the moment you lose the path, I think. One of the things that we sort of struggle with a little bit as well in the personal aspect is you can have something that's personally very motivating but really doesn't, yeah, like the gamification aspects are so strong that you're coming back every day, like product is really happy and business is really happy. But then eventually the the students are going, well, I haven't actually, I can't apply this or uh, Brian, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on, on this and kind of what we'd sort of thought about and discussed. Mm-hmm. On gamification in particular? Yeah, or... gamification in particular, how does that sort of fit in with? Well, 
again, if you, I mean, gamification might work for some learners and might mm -hmm. not work for other learners. So it's very, very dangerous to think yeah. like, okay, gamification is the holy grail or it will work for everyone. Or so that's, I think that that's a big part of the personal aspect, like make sure that, well, ideally you're not creating a curriculum, including a strategy, which gamification is like a part of so it's just a strategy so don't create a curriculum until you've known the learner that is going to use it like that would be like the maximum expression of personal right mm -hmm. of the personal aspect so yeah i mean i would say like it's uh, i've seen in the past few years that a lot of companies say or product developers they would say like okay this is what this is going to be the holy grail this is going to work for everyone and yeah, that's basically what the framework, one of the things that the framework is for, right? Like just try to overcome that bias. And I mean, gamification is not a target. Gamification is just a, a, a group of methodologies in order to engage some learners in that sense. If the end goal is to make people, enable people to apply the language they learned outside instruction, as you just explained, Brian, then yeah, we can apply gamification techniques, but we have a different target in mind. And I've seen at Babel also now as a consultant, still that this combination of product management and educational skill set is quite niche. And product management, also product leadership might come from a strong engagement background, which might include a good knowledge of gamification techniques. But if it's not combined with a good knowledge of how to how to understand, how to diagnose needs, how to guide people towards learning targets, and how to enable people to apply what, what they learned in the end, then you you might create an app that keeps people in the app, but that's of no use for, for their real lives. And that's what I guess we all want to avoid. But that profile still being quite niche means <laughs> that it's quite hard to have team in place that's able to to build products accordingly. And I think what I've also what I'm also now seeing as a consultant is that you can use the framework to detect these gaps in, in leaders and founders and managers of product, help see those blind spots of someone who is maybe commercially quite skilled, but does not have a good understanding of the practical and personal, and then upskill coach people accordingly and also build team according to, to fill these gaps. Yeah, and I think that's a... like you want to say something. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about what you're saying. I, I think there's a, a very clear application of your framework, which comes to mind, which is actually as a kind of offsite management strategy session uh, exercise, where you could have people individually sort of uh, indicate where they think the organization is uh, according to the different quadrants, and then come together as a group and see if they agree, because they probably won't, but you'll flush out a lot of deep-seated or hidden uh, differences. And I think that's a pretty productive exercise. I think certainly one thing that we hoped Brian and I was this idea of providing something possibly outside of the the individuals and a way of communicating that wasn't, hey, I think this and you think that and and then who has the biggest voice wins mm -hmm. is to try and kind of yeah provide that bridge between the two. One thing that you also kind of mentioned, Miriam, that kind of jumped into a conversation Brian and I were having was, one of the things that maybe we could make a bit clearer, but it's still, you have to figure out your goal and mission first and know whether you're a complete solution. Like, are you wanting to be part, like what part of the learning path and journey do you want to be? It's because there's some, sometimes your particular product is perfect for a particular area, but not necessarily for the entire learning journey. And that sort of became kind of apparent when we were thinking about the book and some of the critiques that I thought we could have. But Brian, anything else on 
on that. And, and I think particularly it's, it's relevant to the, oh, AI is, you know, generative AI is now here. How can I use this for every single scenario? And it's starting to become this hammer, hammer and nail problem where everything's looking like a nail to hit with, with AI. And I think it's a really relevant conversation. I'm, I'm hoping, and we kind of felt that the framework kind of was resilient to AI, but I think it's an, a conversation that a lot of people are starting to have. I wonder if Brian, if you have any thoughts on that or any of the other panelists on how this sort of stacks up in the, with the framework. I, I think that the AI story is interesting because like EdTech investors are looking for scale, right? Um, because they want the valuation to increase. So it's very attractive to them and, and, and every investor is trying to look for a sort of AI story because of the valuation. But uh, I, I think it's funny because it's paradoxical, but I think in education, AI is the slowest to advance because of the massive liabilities of the large language models and the, the risks implicit. And I was at the Karlsruhe LearnTech yesterday and I noticed like a lot of people talking about it, but not a lot in product that's being released. And that, I think that'll stay the same. I think that'll be the same next year because it's really hard to do unless you've got a closed set, but then it's not as large as these large models. You've, you've got to have a set of information that you're pulling on which you trust, which means you have uh, uh, quality gates, which you don't have otherwise, and then you can't get the scale and the quality together. And I think until you solve that paradox, you've got nothing. Personal, personal view. So I'd be very interested to see how it goes. Yeah, definitely. And also, I think it's very important to understand that AI is just uh, a technology. I mean, it's a technology that eventually can change a lot of things, but technology per se does not do anything from an instructional perspective. It's all about what you do with that technology. Mm. So again, AI has a lot of potentials to make uh, a lot of blank tech products, tick all the boxes in at the highest level of the framework. But it's, again, it's all a matter of what you do with it, how you train that AI to adapt what instructional methods and how they're going to how it's going to use them. That's that's what's going to be the most relevant thing, I think. I think exactly. And training the AI is so expensive. So you can't just piggyback on stuff that's out yeah. there. You, you'd have yeah. to do it yourself, I think. Sorry, Maria, for speaking. No, you're right. But when we're there, I think what will be interesting is to see how different or similar human and machine powered instruction will become. Your book starts with differentiating the two, and I think the two will be a lot more close. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> a lot of no, there's, there's a rabbit hole. We talked a lot. Of, we actually really discussed a lot, Brian and I, about, and even in the book, we kind of, I guess we do have our opinions on the how AI kind of fits and how the, the unique role that humans play in education. And, and I think one of the things that was fascinating in terms of an analogy was when, when Brian and I were talking about, we had to really discuss language, like human-powered instruction, machine-powered instruction, like what does that mean? We had to think of just definitions. And same thing is there's all these fluffy things that are about humans that are amazing. Like just to being in the room with you now, uh, you know, I can get your your visual you know, cues and I, I, I have a relationship and a connection with each and every one of you. And machines just can't they can't simulate that same level of connection. And I don't, while I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, I'm, I'm kind of just very mindful that in terms of what AI and, and humans do, they're, they're still fundamentally different. And we're going to have to almost in retrospect figure out what is it that makes humans so good and what makes machines. Because we didn't used to need to, to, to differentiate between an AI mm. teacher and mm. a teacher. A teacher was a teacher. And I think there's going to be some interesting 
learnings on the way while we're figuring this all out. I agree with that just very quickly. What, what I think is um, you have to have a defined domain set for an AI to be effective. And I think human conversations branch almost infinitely. And there's a lot of paralinguistic features which are feeding into decisions in real time when people are talking to each other and, and negotiating and so on in business. And for this reason that I think, yes, you could have at low levels, strict parameter kind of chatbots practicing very clear uh, domain areas, uh, like the use of the present perfect uh, according to a kind of script. But I think it's a long way and I think I'll be an old man or dead before they have chatbots able to negotiate, let's say, steel futures, right? With pressure between two companies, with implications, with, with alliances, with uh, preferences around the table, nuances, hooks in the voice, sarcasm. Yeah. Large language models can't do that. And you'd almost have to have an organic brain. Like this is philosophy of mind, right? But I think it's philosophically impossible. Maybe. Despite whatever power you have, whatever computing power. Maybe putting, I think one thing I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'm not going to try and predict that I understand how good the LLMs will become or how good that experience is. And going back to your point, Miriam, maybe they actually become a lot closer and a lot faster than we might think. But but either way, the, the user experience, and again, kind of going back to Brian's point, it can apparently tick all of the boxes on the PPPS framework, but the implementation is so fundamental and whether or not it is motivating and engaging is going to be the big key. Like, do I just get bored with a chatbot, even if it's superhuman realistic? Do I just get bored and just forget about it? it? Particularly if I have to do a lot of the initiative, which currently with, if I just use, for example, ChatGPT, a, a general model, am I just going to forget about it? You know, is it, it's, it doesn't really have a, any accountability for me and there's no framework of motivation for me either. So I think the implementation for these AIs is just going to be absolute. Uh, absolutely crucial. I don't know if you have any further thoughts on this, because again, as a consultant, you probably have a lot more of an idea on how people are viewing AI as well. Any are you thoughts? asking me? Yeah, I am. I'm asking <laughs> you. Is do you have any? I, kind I of think I'm. This? I'm seeing similar things as as Rob, as you described from from the land tech. I see established companies talk a lot about AI, not really acting on it. I see early founders very naturally wanting to build a business on AI and trying to get their hands dirty, but I have not seen their, their beaters yet. So I'm, I'm curious what they will look like, but um, I'm a bit worried about the established companies because the, the early startups uh, use AI so naturally in building strategy and building their early product. So I'm curious they what, yet, what they will do to the market. They have yet to show success, though, Miriam. And, and if you look at the CEO of Babel, right, he was speaking to NASDAQ the other day. He had an interview and he was saying, look, language is fundamentally a human you know, phenomenon. Language training is, you know, it, it requires a human element. And, and that's something that his AI strategy factored in, you know, that it has to be a, a, or a supplementary, mm -hmm. complementary uh, factor to human presence and, and skill. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about I to maybe replicate the human part in instruction. I'm also talking about, yeah, yeah. I think more so talking about AI in creating product. With you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Brian, you actually, you and I were talking about this just, I think yesterday. And I think you had a really good point about what, you know, in the end, what are we learning a language for? And then how, 
if I'm using even the best chatbot available in five years time, what is the actual experience I want in the end? And what's the actual experience I'm wanting to buy? Do you want to maybe kind of mention your, 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 your ideas on this? Because I thought it was really relevant. It, it's basically that what you just said, and also what Rob was saying that the CEO of Babel was saying that yeah, that uh, language is basically like a human <laughs> um, activity. That I mean, at the end of the day, no matter like even if you have an AI that literally replicates the best teacher as an avatar with natural language, and like at the end of the day, the goal of the student or ninety percent of language language students is to talk and interact unmediated with another human being. So it would be great as a scaffolding strategy, as, as an immersion experience, for example, as well. But eventually you have to provide that stage where the student talks and interacts in the target language with another human. So unless, like at least in this world, that is something that is just not going to go away. But maybe, I, mean, I don't know, I'm imagining a future where maybe the goal of some people or some learners is to interact with an AI, <laughs> then in that case, then we can say it's probably like a complete and full experience, but it's not the case at the moment, no matter how good the AI program is. It's, yeah. mm -hmm. Great. Well, exciting and unpredictable future. <laughs> but I think that's a great place to wrap things up today. Thanks to our panelists for joining in. I definitely wanted to mention about the Langtech book. We've we're finally ready to, to to push push play. We've been nervously behind the scenes talking to even the experts that you see on this the screen here, Miriam and, and Rob in particular. Big thank you and Herbert and Corinne. But you can find us on Amazon. Just look for Langtech book. And if you're interested in also getting in contact with us, it's just hello at langtechbook.org. And we've also got a website, langtechbook.org as well. Sometimes it doesn't quite show up. You might need to put in the HTTPS at the front, but we'd absolutely love to, to hear from you. And in the meantime, thanks so much for listening and we wish you every success. All the best. <laughs> Bye.